I looked down and I saw the waves and it was a, a windy day so I saw the water splashing up over the granite cliffs and it was just so amazing and then we climbed up over the clouds and I looked down and I, I, I was in love with it. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. My name is Chuck. I am your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 78. We do have a lot of great soaring content for you on this episode, but before we get to that, a big thank you for continuing to support the podcast. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button. Take a couple minutes and leave us some feedback on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Also, share the podcast with your fellow glider pilots at the Gliderport. Let them know what they are missing. I do also want to thank those of you that continue to financially support the podcast. It means a lot to us. We do this like you because we have a passion for soaring. We want to grow the soaring community. However, it does take a lot of time and hard work to continue to put out these episodes that you continue to enjoy. If you would like to join our Patreon pilots and help the podcast, please go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky or go to soaringthesky.com and there you can click on support the show. While you are there, you can also sign up for our newsletter that we've been talking about that we will be bringing to you soon. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. Today on the podcast, we first head to Allingsor, Sweden to talk with glider pilot David Holmeen. David flies with Gothenburg Soaring Club that is near the west coast of Sweden. He was first introduced to aviation by his father, who is an Air Force pilot, but didn't fly gliders at the time. David would later be the one to introduce his father to soaring. Later on this episode, it's another soaring tale with tail. This one is called God's Own Thermal. We then catch up with Mary Rust. You can hear more from Mary on episode 25 of the podcast. She will explain to us winch launches. Scott Manley will then join us for our soaring safety segment with some great ideas on what we can do to be safer pilots when it's time to get back in the glider after a season of little to no flying. All this now right here on Soaring the Sky. David Holmeen. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm so happy to have you today. How are you? I'm really great. I'm very glad that you're having me here on the podcast. I've looked forward to it. I look forward to speaking with you. And tell me where you are flying out of. I'm flying from Allingsås in Sweden, close to the West Coast. So you must have some amazing places to soar. Yeah, uh, although the uh, Landvetter Airport close to my gliding club is restricting the airspace a bit. So uh, we tend to go inwards instead of out to the coast, but it's still very nice views. Can you describe the landscape there? Uh, well, it's a bit of a flatland with uh, there's fields and uh, and some forests as well. And it's uh, it's not rural and it's not very uh, it's not many many towns. But it's just you you never go somewhere <laughs> way out like. You might do in Australia or something. You always have a house near where you can uh, go if you have to outland. So how did you get into soaring? How did your aviation adventure get started? Yes. So uh, my father is an Air Force fighter pilot. So I was born into aviation, so to speak. But he was always very humble about it and contrary to the stereotype of pilots always talking about them being pilots, he never really talked about it unless someone brought it up. So it, it took a few years. Uh, well, when you're young, you don't really realize what's going on. And But when I was like eight, I actually realized that, oh, my father is flying. That's kind of cool. But I like cars instead. So <laughs> I wasn't really interested. <laughs> In that way but uh, I I thought it was cool and we went to some air shows and everything and yeah it's it's pretty to look at but it, it's nothing for me uh, 
But as I got older, I I started to gain some interest, and I was very curious in in my early life. So I asked my father a lot of questions, and I started playing some simulator games or other flying related games, and I started to realize that oh, the flying is is kind of cool actually. So as I got a bit older, further into my life. I started looking more and more towards the skies, and uh, after being to some different air shows once with my friends, I, I really started admiring it. And uh, at about this age, I decided that oh, one day I I, I really want to fly. Maybe maybe not as a profession, but at least in some way. So when I was fourteen, uh, through my father, he arranged. Uh, that his colleague took me and my brother and my mother on a flight with a Air Force school aircraft, an SK-60. So uh, it was a jet aircraft for training pilots. So uh, his colleague took us up over, flew over our hometown and some other local towns and like Gothenburg and flew all over the coastline. And it was just so amazing. I... I recorded nearly all of it. The thing is, when you're flying like that, and it's such a new experience, and you're seeing so many things, and you just get tunnel vision. You you only see like straight ahead, and you're so overwhelmed with it. So I'm I'm very glad that I recorded it, so I can go through it again. But anyway, after flying out over the coast and further out over the waters. Uh, I looked down and I saw the waves and it was a, a windy day. So I saw the water splashing up over the granite cliffs and it was just so amazing. And then we climbed up over the clouds and I looked down and I, I, I was in love with it. I, I definitely felt the need to go there myself. And it also got a little bit better because I heard on the radio that a, a Gripen fighter uh, was closing in. So I didn't really think much about it because I was still in this zone where I thought, oh, the clouds are so cool. So I, I didn't really think about it until I saw the fighter yet uh, join us in formation. So I looked over to it and she was flying there. So very fantastic, <laughs> just seeing all of it. And then I looked a little closer and I saw that it was my dad in the, in the jet. So my, my entire family... Uh, was in this uh, school aircraft and over there was my dad flying a few meters apart oh. and <laughs> that experience just <laughs> it was so overwhelming there that once again I'm very glad that I recorded it because otherwise I might not even believe it was true and it was actually happening so I waved to him and he waved to me and then he activated the afterburner and did an Immelman and flew straight away and disappeared nice so <laughs> that was one hell of an experience. So we went back and landed and I was shaking. <laughs> I, I, I knew that I have to fly. I have to fly. So a few months later, you could, uh, you could join an Air Force voluntary summer camp. It was aimed for uh, people between 15 and 20. And uh, you could just go there for two weeks and just check out what the, the Air Force was all about and what do you do there and find out what are your limits and do some tough stuff and, <laughs> you know, man up a little. And you also got to see some airplanes, a lot of it, and you got to fly a simulator and everything. So it was even more flying there. And it was just so amazing. We, we flew on an Hercules aircraft as well. We're about 80 people on the summer camp. All of us were like 15, 16. So we're sitting there on an Hercules. And uh, we saw the uh, loading bay opening up mid-flight and just looking out over the landscape. And at this point, I had uh, seen some extreme, very fantastic experiences or sights in a short time. So this further increased my need to go in the air. And as I completed the summer camp, I got a gift card to fly a, a glider at a local club. So at that point, I decided that I, I'm going to fly something. And I talked with my dad and he said uh, that 
maybe the two alternatives that are good for me and well possible uh, money wise is uh, either ultralight or flying sailplanes. So I, I figured in the beginning, wh- why would I want to fly sailplanes? They don't have engines; <laughs> they're slow, and well, you just go up and then you go down. What's what's the point of that? But I, I decided that okay, I'll I'll take the uh, gift card and go for a glider flight, and then I'll try to get a flight in an ultralight, and then I'll decide. I uh, booked a uh, glider flight with the, the local club, which is now my active flying club, by the way. And as I got there, uh, I was just immediately met by the positiveness and friendliness of everyone in the club. I, I felt included uh, directly from the start. I, w- I thought it was really cool to see how everyone at the club was working together, pushing the aircrafts and uh, lining them up for a start. Uh, it was just teamwork and uh, as they talked me through it, no one no one works there. Uh, everyone works for each other and that's, that's how the club works. I thought that was really cool. Uh, so uh, the pilot who was going to fly with me, he gave me a quick safety briefing and explained uh, the controls and the instruments and what everything, what everything does and how to use the parachute and everything. Uh, so we were going to fly an ASK-21, by the way. So uh, we headed out with the aircraft on the field and lined it up. And uh, I felt very nervous because this, uh, this is a very hands-on experience. But as we took off, uh, I was shocked by how quickly uh, the aircraft lifted from the ground. And uh, it, several, it lifted several seconds before the tow plane. So uh, I felt there's some very, very powerful wings on this thing. I remember thinking that. And as we accelerated and climbed out, I remember noticing the chimneys of the local factories just shrunk down and passed under us. When you're flying and you look out the window uh, in a commercial aircraft, you're, you're, might be, uh, you're maybe at 12,000 feet, but you're so far away and uh, you can only look straight out the side. So everything you see, you, you know that it's very far away, but it's the same size still. But it, it's such a huge distance that it, it just doesn't feel real. It, it's not relevant to you in any way, and it has nothing to do with you. But when you're in a glider, everything feels so personal. No, soaring is definitely in your face. I know what you're talking about, because with me, it's it the same way when I first got in a glider. So you started out with the ASK-21? Yeah, that's right. I went to my first gliding lesson about a month after my try tryout flight, and I quickly decided that oh, I want to do soaring. So I, I never even tried ultralight because I, I was completely sold. It was just an, such an amazing experience. Uh, so I directly went to start studying for uh, my certificate. Uh, and I immediately felt very welcome into the club and all of the teachers and instructors were very helpful and they were coaching me forward. And at that point, I was the only, I, at least I think I was the only active junior flying there. So below the age of 25. So the age range wasn't very diverse, so to speak. They still were very in, invested in uh, teaching the newcomer. So that was, a, that was very nice of them. So I did a few flights and I, I started reading a lot of the, the material that you have to study. And the more I flew and the more I read, the more excited I was for the next flight. At this point, I thought one day when I'll have my certificate, maybe I'll find soaring boring. Because right now I have a mission. I have through every tr- training flight, I have something to practice and my teacher tells me something new and but once i have the certificates what will there be to do but this far i will return to it later but that was what i felt at this moment so during this summer i flew a lot of training flights and i was slowly gained some experience and uh, in the beginning of the of uh, fall that year uh, i did my first solo uh, on a uh, with a very low cloud base and almost uh, complete overcast. 
but the air was very smooth and completely still. It, it was such an amazing experience just to getting getting the plane all by yourself and feel uh, how light it was when there was only one person in it instead of two. So I felt the plane lift a little earlier on a toe and everything felt a little smoother, actually. And as I went into land, I did my level out a little early because uh, the plane was reacting quicker to uh, my pitch control. So I almost did an, a very bad first landing on my first solo, but the, the actual landing got very smooth. So I took my C badge in the end of the fall, and I was so very excited to fly again. So the off-season that year was almost unbearable. I just wanted to get in the air again. So the upcoming year, I went through more and more lessons, and I also completed my theoretical part of the uh, training. Uh, at that point, I just had to fly more and more flights. And then in, in some time, I would be done. I was getting closer and closer to my certificates and uh, I was getting very excited about it because I wanted to take my family for a flight with them. Also fly with my friends. So I was very much looking forward to it and also getting the papers, like making it official. I very much looked forward to that. So in the, in the middle of the summer, I completed my training and uh, I felt, I, I felt very good about myself. There. It was going like a dream. It was a dream come true, basically. It was one year ago, right now. Oh, <laughs> I had to think about that. <laughs> oh, very nice. Oh. So you've been flying around for a year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I've been flying one year on my certificate. <laughs> oh my God, I had to think. About so you haven't gotten bored yet, right? No. Yeah, I was going to uh, return to that. Uh, and as I said, I was afraid of getting bored. But as I flew more and more, I realized that I'm not, I'm not getting any closer to getting bored. I, I still think to this day that every flight I make is a little better than the last one in terms of how much I enjoy it. I really see how people spend their entire lives flying because it's just so amazing. I, I don't doubt anymore that uh, I'll f <laughs> uh, continue flying. I, I know it because I need to be flying, I need to be soaring, I need to find the thermals, and I, I feel so accomplished with myself when I do a good uh, soaring flight. I won't be quitting that anytime soon. Well, good to hear. What type of launch do you have there at your club? Our field is uh, only 600 meters long. What is that? 1,800 feet, I think? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so, so it's not very long. So uh, we only have uh, a towing, uh, air towing as a launch method. Uh, although I have tried winching once, and uh, yeah, I, I would very much like to have a winch at my club just because it feels so so good, and how we how it accelerates so quickly. So it's a bit of a bummer that we don't have it. I haven't done a winch launch myself, but yeah, I hear is very fast, exhilarating, a lot of fun. So I do want to try that eventually. Yeah, you should definitely definitely try that soon. So arrow, so you've done arrow tow and winch launch. Any any other launches you've done? Any motor gliders? Yeah, I have flown a motor glider a few times. Uh, I've began my motor gliding, motor gliding training, but I haven't really completed it because I'm focusing on cross country flying instead. So was it self launcher? It was a Grob one oh nine. Okay, nice. So uh, it's not. It's more of a <laughs> propeller plane <laughs> than a uh, uh, than a sailplane, but you can still glide with it, and it has about the same performance as a PW five. So, have you had any launches that were a little scary, and maybe you learned something from them? Uh, most of my launches have been very problem free. They've gone pretty smoothly. Although sometimes when it's very turbulent, you you get a little scared. You don't want to get a, a rope break at a low altitude and so. But otherwise, no, not really. I have always been, as I do the checklist, I've been picturing every scenario in my head and try to be prepared for everything. So I feel, I always feel very prepared, but sometimes there's been very rough starts. So rough start as far as taking off? Yeah, exactly. 
following the tow plane or just getting bumped around? Yeah, it was uh, when it's very turbulent, it's hard to just stay straight behind the tow plane. And uh, when you're on a very low altitude, you don't want to mess up because then you're not only risking yourself, you're risking the tow plane as well. You really have to look out for that and stay alert. But uh, when it comes to scary stuff, there's been more on the landing side of uh, the flight. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so uh, I've been flying at some different uh, airfields around uh, the west side of Sweden. And uh, one of them, Olaberg, is uh, sort of the Swedish soaring center. And it's a small mountain, or not even mountain, maybe. It's a 100 meter high uh, airfield anyways. So you have to have a slightly different landing approach to it because the steep uh, hills next to it, they cause a lot of turbulence and downdrafts and uh, streams of air that are very hard to uh, hard to navigate. So you have to uh, keep a very narrow landing circuit. As I was doing that for my first time, I came in uh, very, very much too high. And to compensate for that, I had to pull full air brake and fly at a very uh, high velocity. So as I was coming in, uh, it, it was very scary. It all went very smoothly. But I think I had 160 kilometers per hour on final with full air brakes extended. And uh, I was also flying an ASK-21, so I was dropping like a rock at the moment. But everything went fine. I've had some other landings as well, such as my first outlanding, which was especially scary since, uh, well, every, every first time is scary, you know. I was trying to do a cross-country flight, my first ever, uh, in a PW5. Uh, that plane is notorious for sinking very quickly. I was uh, trying to do a 100-kilometer task, but the uh, weather wasn't on my side. So I quickly dropped out of the uh, so-called funnel. If you take your theoretical glide distance or a glide ratio and use it as a, picture it as a slope and then add a little extra safety margin height-wise, you can imagine a giant funnel surrounding your aircraft. And if you're inside your local glider port's funnel, so to speak, you can reach home. If you have glide ratio that puts you inside the funnel, you're safe. So that's why we call it the funnel. If you're in the funnel, you're safe. If you're outside of the funnel, uh, not enough uh, glide ratio to make it home. So we use that term a lot. So it, that when you're inside the funnel, that's uh, your training basically, and up until certificates mostly. And after you've taken your certificates, then you can begin flying outside of the funnel. So I was flying outside of my local gliding club's uh, funnel as I was uh, rapidly sinking. And I remember thinking to myself that, okay, this is okay. Uh, the previous thermals were very good. I just need to find one of those. But I never did. So I called on the radio that I was preparing to do an outlanding. And at this moment, my heart began pounding really fast. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't really have anywhere to go uh, where I could land on an airport. So I decided to pick a field in, in the near vicinity so that I don't have to go very far. So straight below me, there was a very big field that was pointed in the direction of the wind. So I thought to myself, okay, this is perfect. I just need to find that there are no electrical poles and whatnot. But the plane was sinking very rapidly, so I became quite stressed. I looked uh, for the power lines and I saw, okay, they're a safe distance away and nothing looks weird. There's no, there's no stones or anything. So I thought, okay, now I just need to relax and go in and do this. So I made a final call on the radio that I would be landing a few kilometers away. And I lined up the circuits and uh, my pulse uh, was going faster and faster. But I still just tried to do as I always been taught to do. So I followed my landing circuits 
And I remember as I turned up to base, I realized that I was a bit too high. But uh, as I was flying the PW5, I knew that sinking wouldn't be a problem. So as I turned, <laughs> yeah. So as I turned on on the final, I dropped full air brakes and I quickly got down to a normal altitude. And I just came in to the field and I pulled up and leveled out. And as I touched down, I realized that that was my smoothest landing ever. Ah, oh, very nice. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I, I felt very good about that one. And as my plane came to a stop, I just sat in the canopy and I just smiled to myself <laughs> and started laughing because I, I had been pre- I had previously previously been so scared about doing an outlanding because what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? But now I've I've finally done it. And if you're just planning it very carefully and uh, do it thoroughly, it will go okay. It will turn out okay. I just sat in the cockpit for some time, just taking a few breaths and uh, debriefing the flight in my head, sort of. When I looked out and saw a mother and a few kids running towards the aircraft, and and then I remembered, oh, I haven't even stepped out of the aircraft yet. They might think I'm hurt or something. So I quickly opened up and just went out and greeted them. And they were very friendly, and I asked about... Uh, if they wanted to, some money for the landing or for me landing in their field, she told me that it was everything was okay, and they just thought it was very, very cool to have it all happen. Uh, she had been on the phone with a neighbor at the time of the landing, so uh, quickly everyone in the whole uh, community uh, knew about this landing, and I became sort of a local star. So. Uh, so that was very that was very fun it was a big bonus to uh, the great landing Uh, so she actually asked if she could take a picture with me and her kids in front of the aircraft Uh, why would I say no to that so uh, they took a picture and they offered me coffee I knew that the the team to come and pick me up in the plane they wouldn't be long so I just uh, told them that I will wait by the aircraft instead. So I took some pictures and as the, the, the pickup team arrived, uh, it was my dad and uh, one of my teachers. And the first thing my teachers uh, said was that the, the field uh, selection was perfect, that the, that was the best field uh, to pick uh, out of this area. So that felt very good. And uh, so I got some positive feedback on that. And as we uh, uh, loaded the aircraft in the uh, trailer, everything just felt very good. And I felt relaxed knowing that an outlanding is okay to do. It's okay to outland. It isn't any more difficult than landing at a normal grass trip. You just have to pick the right field. Yeah, you just had to, I mean, you had adrenaline, of course, but you remembered your training. Yeah, exactly. You went through it, proper procedures, and it was great. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Uh, I very much value that that you follow procedure and I, I always think a lot about safety, uh, especially when you're flying a two-seater where you have another person's life on your hands as well. I, I really like this quote where uh, it goes, never put your plane in a place your mind hasn't already been. I always strive to follow that and always plan ahead and try to predict uh, what can go wrong and how to fix it. That's good advice. Absolutely. What is the strangest thing you've seen from the cockpit? Oh, the strangest thing. Hmm. Well, that must have been when I was flying one day and I came across some birds, uh, two birds flying in a formation with each other. And uh, as I moved closer to them, I realized they must be thinking I'm a, a bird trying to eat them or something because they panicked. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I flew next to them for some time and they started to uh, try to shake me off and do some weird turning and split up and join up again and accelerate and dive. And it was just very fun to look at. And uh, I can say the birds uh, actually managed to outmaneuver me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's nice to know. The best pilots in the world, those are birds. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You can learn a lot from them for sure. And as you know, in soaring, 
we can always find left where there's some nice hawks or eagles. Yeah, exactly. What's even cooler is when a bird decides to join you in a in a thermal. That's a very special experience, and <laughs> it's only happened to me once. I was I was just flying on a normal yeah a normal day, and it was going quite well. And I found this really good thermal. Before that, I I'd seen that there was a bird in the area. So I went after the bird to uh, find the, the bird's lift. It was a very good lift, of course, but I I decided to try to find another source of lift in a uh, another cloud. So I, I went away and the bird decided to join me afterwards as the the lift definitely was greater there. But I think it's uh, very funny how, how the bird realized that. Yeah, maybe just thought I was another bird who had a better and a better idea. <laughs> I don't know, but it was uh, it was very cool either way. Oh, that is cool. And you were you've started out with the ASK twenty one. What are you flying right now? Yeah, so uh, I've flown the ASK twenty one, uh, but I've also flown the LS eight. Oh, nice. The ASW nineteen and the PW five. Uh, those are the ones I have uh, license to uh, fly. But I've also flown some other planes, especially some two seaters like the Duo Discus. Uh, DG 500 and 1000. So uh, I have flown some different planes and I uh, I think the ASW 19 is my favorite uh, because of how it handles. Uh, I think the controls are very harmonic. Do you have a dream glider that if money is no object that you love to fly? Well, now, now I have to think about it. There are some very great gliders out there. But the uh, Yonker, the Rapture one, uh, there's a uh, guy at my club who uh, recently purchased one of those. I barely even uh, dare to look at it because it's just so shiny and uh, so well-crafted. And it also has a jet engine and everything. So it, it just feels too too expensive to even look at. Wow, yeah. So speaking of your club, do you have any shout-outs you'd like to give anybody? Yeah, first of all, all of the, all of the teachers and instructors at my club, I... I'm extremely thankful for all of them because they're always positive, always uh, looking forward, and they, they really care about you as a student. And they they are all very passionate about what they're doing. It's always a good day when you're flying with them. What is your club doing as far as helping out the soaring community? Do you have any events that you all do? What do you do to bring other people in? We always try to get as many people as possible to go and try out the sport, and we have some try it out days we call them where people get to come and they get to see everything and uh, if they want to they can go in the air as well and we try to keep the prices as low as possible so that it's uh, as accessible as possible we we always do some local club competitions such as landing competitions and actually junior uh, landing competitions where several clubs are invited those are actually pretty fun yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Actually, I've never been to one of those. It's a uh, different sort of gliding. Uh, you uh, you have to have a little bit of luck, but most importantly, you have to know your aircraft very well. Last year, I came on third place on the local uh, sort of landing competition. So I got into the nationals, which isn't really a big deal in Sweden, uh, especially on the junior level. It's more of a fun thing to keep in touch with all the other clubs. But I got to participate in the nationals, and that was very cool, and get to meet uh, some other juniors from uh, around the country. So how does the competition work? Uh, you get to fly two times, and you try to land as close as possible to a, uh, to a line on the grass strip, and you get a point for every meter away from the line you land. So you have to touch down as close to it as possible and you add the two scores and the one with the lowest score wins the competition. So it's uh, very simple rules, but there are some different strate uh, strategies you can go, uh, you can use to uh, try to claim the first prize. So when you actually touch down, you touch the runway, the closest to touching the line, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, where the uh, main wheel touches the ground. That's okay, where it gotcha. counts. So it's not where the aircraft stops or anything. It's just, yeah. Power management for sure. Yeah, exactly. So when I flew the ASK, ASK-21, it went uh, very well because I'm, I'm very familiar with it. But I uh, uh, had to uh, fly an DG-500 and it, it flies a whole lot better. 
So I wasn't used to how much energy it still had left when I tried to land. So I flew way past the marking and the runway. You really have to know your machine. Well, David, thank you for sharing your story today. It's been nice chatting with you. Yeah, it's been very nice. Thank you so much. It sounds like you guys are doing some cool stuff to get people interested. I love the landing competition. That's something that maybe we all could do at our clubs to bring people in. People like a good competition. So Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's more popular in Europe than America, maybe. But it's very fun. It's a, it's a lighthearted kind of competition. Everyone just uh, has a lot of fun and you can also get to show off some skills, but that isn't really what it's about. It's to unite people uh, more. So that's why I really like those competitions. Yes, absolutely. Take care, David. Thanks again. Yeah, you too, Shuck. Thank you, David, for sharing your story here on Soaring the Sky. We now join Dale Masters for Soaring Tales with Dale. This one's titled God's Own Thermal. Things like this can happen. We were in a 233, which is a fine plane to land out in, but not a very good plane to re-rig, to take apart and put back together, especially if you don't have enough help. I was up with a student. We come back to the airport. It's evening, so there's not going to be much time left if we do land out. But we're over the airport. And we look down, and on this paved parking pad between two lines of powered airplanes, there was this uh, white, something white was spreading across the ramp. It looked like a giant piece of meringue pie just spreading across the ramp. And I realized immediately that is liquid propane escaping from a tank. And we're at about 1,000 feet in a 233, so we're, we will be down soon. So what are you going to do? I mean, I would ask you or the listeners, what are you going to do? I think the, the sanest thing would have been to just go away and land somewhere two miles off and pay the price. But what I had my student do was fly directly into the wind, just straight and kind of fast to get away from there until we were as far as we could get, and then turn back and fly a downwind approach straight, straight in to the nearest point of the airport furthest from the action. And we did that, and then we just stopped there on that corner of the airport, waiting to see if it was going to explode. And by then, by that time, fire trucks had come, and they had basically evacuated the neighborhood, and the fire trucks were beginning to spray down the entire flight line of airplanes. Because I didn't know this at the time, but propane can stick on things and remain explosive even after most of it's gone. So we just sat there, and I even said, let's keep the canopy closed in case there's a shock wave coming our way. We just waited for maybe 20, 30 minutes. But on that approach coming back in, from upwind of the airport, we could smell the propane thick in the air. In fact, we didn't know the fire trucks were coming until we had landed, but I wasn't going to get out and walk toward that. And talking about it later with somebody who knew that stuff, he said, well, if, if, if the fireball had erupted while you were over it, you would have been in the middle of the fireball at 1,000 feet above ground. But ask yourself, what would you have done? Thank you, Dale, for another great soaring tale. Looking forward to your next one on our next episode. And now we join Mary Rust as she talks about winch launches. You go from zero to... 55, 60 miles an hour, very, very quickly. And within seconds, you're up to a thousand feet or higher. I think my highest launch was in a 126 and I got to 2000 feet. So you can get off at 12 or 1500 feet and uh, actually soar. One of the most fun times I had was one day at 29 Palms Airport flying with an old friend of mine, Harold Kotinsky, in a L-13. We took off together just for fun because we're both instructors it seems like we're always working with students and it was fun just to fly together we took off we got up there i think we got off around uh uh 1200 feet and we we uh thermaled up way 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 higher than 10,000 feet we're up for a while and then we did some spins and aerobatics on the way down so it was really quite fun winter launching is a great way to stay current in the winter time it's cheap you know, you can get a launch. Well, we used to do our launches for $10, and you get a lot of takeoffs and landings. Um, the downside is you have a lot of experience with takeoffs and landings, but not a lot of hours because sometimes it's a two- or three-minute flight, maybe sometimes a five-minute. 
or maybe like when you're in a, a dry lake or in a nice airport out where it's real warm and there's a lot of thermal activity, you can stay up for a long time. It's a completely different than aerotow. Of course, the landing's the same, but the, the takeoffs can be dangerous if you're not really well trained and very aware of every attitude you have for during your climb so that you can always get out of it if, if there's a rope break. Now they use wonderful ropes. Uh, back in those days, we used armored cable left over from the Navy, and it, and it would break. Probably close to 50% of the launches were breaks. It makes for really exciting flying. <laughs> you have to be instinctively quick. They won't solo you till you're really, really, your, your hand-eye coordination is very quick, very fast, and you know what you're going to do at every altitude, exactly what you're going to do, and you do it, and it's very safe if you do that. Thank you, Mary, and now we join Scott Manley for our Soaring Safety segment. Scott Manley, glad to have you back on the podcast today. How are you? Thank you, Chuck. I'm well, and uh, it's good to be here. So you are a big uh, flight simulator guy, Condor. Um, you also do teaching with it. So I, my question, I guess, today is, how does safety tie in with all that, and how do you teach all of that with the simulation? So any kind, anytime I do some one of these presentations, I, I, I always head off to uh, a dictionary uh, to look up the term that is the, uh, the topic of the presentation. So I went and looked up the, a couple definitions for safety because it kind of helps me think about and organize uh, some of my thoughts around the topic. And here are the ones that I found that I like. Safety is the condition of being protected from or unlikely to cause danger, risk, injury, and then I tacked on physical damage. And then an, an, a second definition that I found is uh, safety is the control of recognized hazards in order to achieve an acceptable level of risk. So I found both of those interesting because they pretty well tie into my notion um, I find safety an interesting an interesting topic. Uh, I know a lot of people don't seem to jump on it very well, but um, I'm kind of a fan of uh, human behavior, kind of a, an amateur student of, of human behavior. There's a something called Maslow's hierarchy, which talks about uh, human need in a in a priority sense. It starts out. It, it's got five levels. It starts out with the physiological, our need for for just basic food, water, shelter. Um, I refer to that as survival 101. It's just the, our built-in drive to stay alive. But right above that is our need for safety and security. So um, that's going to kind of play into. So you would you would think, and I do, that um, we have a an almost uh, hardwired subconscious need to to feel safe and secured. Um, what's interesting is that Maslow's hierarchy continues on through um, the next level up as we our, our need to, to belong or to, or to feel loved. But then it goes on to to accomplish things and to to establish prestige. Uh, what's interesting about that is um, that starts to conflict with our need to be safe. So then I kind of get into the the elements of what it is that uh, allows us to be safe. From a soaring perspective, I refer back to uh, something Tom Knopf has been talking about for years, and that is that the reason that we keep having accidents and incidents and destroying our, our, our aircraft and the things around them is that we, we don't know the things that we should know. And so knowledge is is one of the fundamental aspects of, of being safe. And if you get back to one of the definitions where it says the control of recognized hazards you have to know what it is that that's endangering you before you can even start to to deal with them. So knowledge is an important aspect here. The next one down that I think about in terms of safety is uh, our attitude toward it and the discipline with with which we must approach the. To, we have to actually have the right attitude and, and be disciplined about doing the things that we need to do to stay safe. And then eventually we get to uh, the ability to actually do what we know we should do uh, at a high level of proficiency. So the skills that we need and the, and the level of skill that we need to be at to make all that happen, which is kind of where uh, simulation, in my mind, comes into play. I'm a, I'm a big fan of simulation mostly because of my drive to be a, a good flight instructor. So when you think about the knowledge aspect of safety, simulation is, is really, in, in my mind, the, just the superior learning environment. If you're going to be learning about the things you need to know, uh, simulation is a great environment to do that, um, not only from a the development of fundamental skills, but then just the overall depth and breadth of experience 
that you can achieve through simulation that you um, would either take forever in the real world or just cost too much or just that we, we don't end up having the, the experience we need. Proficiency then is the, is the ability to master those skills that we need. If you Google how to achieve mastery, it, uh, you kind of get a sense of what it takes to actually achieve some level of proficiency um, that would help ensure your safety. And then, of course, you, uh, you need to maintain that level of proficiency if you're going to stay safe. Those are just some kind of initial thoughts on, uh, on just the overall or the, the underlying fundamentals of, of safety. So I'm, I'm just going to turn it back to you for a second in case you've got some thoughts on that. Well, you know, going into the off season in this part of the country and, and where you are, we are going to be having a lot of those days where we're not able to go out to the airport because of weather or just a lot, you know, other stuff going on and just the clubs aren't as active, of course, in the winter. So we have all that time that we're not in the glider. And in order to stay proficient, I think that's where simulation really comes in in the winter time. Yeah, I actually, um, I wrote an article back in December of 2011 in Soaring Magazine in the Condor Corner article that was entitled Attaining, Regaining, and Maintaining Your Proficiency. And it kind of talks about, uh, one of the things it mentions in there is the is the use it or lose it concept, um, which says, and so the off-season is certainly one of the one of the places where if, you're, if your brain is not engaged in the process of soaring and the, the skills required to do it well, that knowledge and those skills will atrophy. And simulation is a great way to just keep your brain sharp. I, I tell people all the time that after I started using simulation and teaching simulation on a regular basis, there was no off-season for me. I could come back after six or seven months of, of not having touched a glider and get into a glider and fly it like I never left it. And that is because my brain, uh, which is your primary flying mechanism, uh, my brain never left the process. My brain was still as sharp as when I got out of the glider the last time I did. And that genuinely makes all the difference in the world because um, I, I tell people that flying, 90% of flying at least, is, is mental and only 10% of it is physical. So yeah, staying sharp with the procedures that you need to do and the, and the skills that you need to do them. Um, you can't beat simulation. And pretty much everybody else in the world knows that. The, the whole aviation community in terms of um, the military and the, the airlines and the professional flight schools like flight safety, they all understand the value of simulation and how you stay sharp by staying in the game on a regular basis. Absolutely. I know the airlines is huge on simulation. And most of those guys going into another type aircraft, that's what they do. They put them in the simulator. Yeah. In fact, airlines, uh, airline pilots are now largely fully qualified to fly an aircraft in simulation. And the first time they actually go fly the real aircraft, they've got people in the back. Yeah, up until that time, they only flew a simulation. Which is absolutely amazing. So that shows you how big it really is. So you being a teacher and, and teaching a lot of stuff with the simulator, are there any things that you'd put your students as far as maybe put them in a situation that you normally wouldn't, but because it is in a simulator, you put them in maybe something that could happen while you're in flight, but something that maybe an instructor out at the airfield isn't going to put them in because of safety. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, when I think about all of the different applications that you that you have for simulation, I usually start out with, with just the, the building and establishment of fundamental skills, um, airspeed control, streamlined, constant bank, constant airspeed turns, the, the ability to control your descent profile, the ability to, to combine all those skills when you're flying the traffic pattern, landings, uh, launch methods. What's interesting is that, is that Condor can actually now support all three launch methods. So if you need uh, work on your aero towing and if you need launch, uh, win, you know, um, if you have a winch launch, ground launch endorsement, you can do ground launches and, and keep those skills sharp. And you can now do self-launch in Condor. There's a couple of self-launching aircraft. You know, just the, the basic skills of crabbing and slipping the aircraft. And then the whole notion of, of just keeping your procedures sharp, the, the you know, running through your checklists and, and those kinds of things are all things that you can mentally practice uh, and, and apply in a, in a very realistic environment in, in simulation. And then, yes, the, the point that you mentioned, which is simulation is actually is, is just in, invaluable for being able to put people into, train people to handle situations which are either too dangerous or are simply unusual in the area that you're in. So, for example, uh, getting low and slow in the traffic pattern or getting into a situation where you're trying to stretch a glide back to the airport. 
you know, terminations of the tow at various points that, that we'll never actually do in a real aircraft, like let the aircraft get, you know, 100 feet above the ground off the, off the departure end of the runway, where the only alternative is to land off the airport. We rarely, if ever, actually do that. And my contention is that unless your brain has, has been through that experience on multiple occasions, if it ever happens to you in the real world, you're, you're likely to, to come to a bad end. You know, stalling and spinning out of a thermal. We rarely ever actually practice that, but you can you can do that in Condor and see what that's like and, and deal with it. Another very interesting one is uh, I don't I don't know if uh, if if you or any of your uh, listening audience has ever been pulled into a cloud by a really strong thermal, but inadvertent entry into a cloud is a, is a recipe for disaster. If you've not actually experienced it and the and experienced what's going to happen next, usually people don't survive that that situation. But you can do it in Condor to the point where you can you can scare yourself into not ever getting there in the real world. There's, there's just some great things that you can do uh, in simulation that you would that you would never do in the real world. And because you never do them, your brain hasn't been there, and so your your brain will never recognize the situation as it's happening because it's never seen it before. And then you don't have any uh, experience dealing with it, and so it's unlikely that you'll that you'll do the right things to to survive it. And again, simulation you can you can experience and be trained to deal with all of those situations in a way that's that's ultimately meaningful. It reminds me of an, of an article that um, Frank Painter wrote, I believe, for um, I don't know if it was Soaring Magazine or there was another um, uh, online soaring thing that, that that was in place at one time. Um, Frank wrote an article entitled "What I Learned by Killing Myself." The point of the article was that he was he was trying to learn to fly on ridges. And he was doing that in simulation and on, on multiple occasions either hit the ridge or got slow on the ridge to the point where he started to lose control and ended up spinning into the trees. Or so on, on multiple occasions, he, he came to a bad end trying to figure out how to fly on a ridge. But ultimately, he figured out um, or, or read about and there was able, was able to practice and experience um, how to stay safe on a ridge. And when he actually flew on real ridges, he said he found himself one day uh, heading into a, a something he had learned from experience would kill him, and immediately reacted properly to it and saved his bacon by not going there. He had never actually been in that situation. Um, had he not trained himself in simulation, uh, he might have he might have ended up actually in the real trees. So, just another example of of how simulation could play into that particular situation, the value that it adds there in, in those kinds of things. Absolutely life saving. You know, I've talked to some guys at the club and some other clubs and some of them are into simulation and we chat about it and others are like, Oh, I don't play games. I don't, I don't get into that. And I'm like, no, it's, it's way beyond a game. It can actually teach you a lot and maybe save your life. And they just kind of look at you, but you know, I get it. Some people aren't into computers and when it comes to that stuff, it's something that I think even some of those people really need to think about. It can actually get you out of a bad situation because it is training and is takes you beyond what normally you would. Well, so the, the notion of, of whether um, using a simulator is a game or not, you can definitely have a good time in a simulator doing things that, that you would never dare to do otherwise. And just, and you know, literally doing things that are just foolish and dangerous and, and seeing what that's like. Um, it kind of gets back to uh, this notion of attitude and discipline. Condor is a game if that's how you approach it. And I do sometimes approach it as a game. I just go have a good time with it and do stupid crap, fly upside down and fly, you know, inverted low and inverted low passes right. down the runway and, you know, uh, land the aircraft and roll it into the hangar. Um, I, I do, I do all of that stupid crap. Um, on the other hand, you can simply take it as a, a very uh, serious endeavor. So for example, I was, I, I took a, a cross country flight in a glider one time in, in Condor. And I had literally flown for three hours and, you know, flew a long cross-country flight. And, you know, in Condor, there's no shortcuts. It's all real time. So to fly a three-hour cross-country takes three hours. And when I got back from that cross-country flight, I came into the traffic pattern, uh, flew a very nice approach. And when I touched down, the glider came to an absolutely screeching stop. And what I realized is that I, after flying that long cross-country, being tired, I hadn't put the gear down. And I landed gear up after a long cross country. And most people would say, well, you know, that's funny. That, uh, that's amusing. I took that very seriously. What I took that as is if this can happen to my brain in simulation, if after getting tired and, you know, maybe having to pee when I get back and, and being physically and mentally distracted, this is what can happen. 
And if it can happen in simulation, it can happen in the real world. And I, I took that very seriously. So again, it's, it's all how you approach uh, the activity. You, you can play games with it, or you can, you can be absolutely serious about what you're doing and train your brain to be very serious about what you're doing. Absolutely. And I do know some people that use Condor that are very serious and they won't even treat it like a game. It's a personal thing. I treat it like a game sometimes. When people would be talking to me about Condor, they would say, you know, I was, I was playing with Condor the other day and I said, no, you weren't. You were not playing with Condor. You don't play with Condor. Condor is not a toy. So I used to be kind of a jerk about that. But uh, now I say it with a smile on my face. So it, uh, the, the point is made without, without seeming, seeming like as much of a jerk. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing if someone takes it seriously all the time. I guess that means when they get in the glider, they're not even going to think about. I mean, when I get in the glider, I'm, it's the glider and it's very serious and I go fly. But when I get in Condor, like you said, there's those times I just want to goof around and try stuff I never would try in a glider. Well, and that's because you know that in this environment, and this is, this is again, your innate ability to sense what is dangerous and what is not, you can shift gears. And it's, it's actually one of, the, um, one of the things you have to be careful of when you're flying in simulation is that you can get away with things and, and you have to understand that that can transfer to, to real life. So that's why you have to really take the simulation, you know, you have to decide on that particular session, what is this about? Is this about having a good time and goofing off or is this serious brain training? And so you, you make sure that, and I, I tell people, don't ever do anything in simulation that you would not do in the real world. And don't do anything in the real world that you haven't taken seriously in simulation. So make sure that those two experiences, if you're going to apply this to serious safety, make sure that you're doing everything uh, in simulation. I don't, you know, I don't, let, I, don't, I don't let my students get away with not running a checklist every single time they take off and every single time they land, because you don't ever want to get out of the habit of doing that or think that you can get away with, with that. How much progression have you seen using the simulator and how much faster than if you're teaching in the real world and at the glider board? Uh, one of the things that I tell people is that um, I equate the safest pilots, in my opinion, are the pilots with the most experience, both breadth and depth and extent of experience. And so one of the things that, that simulation allows your brain to do is to experience more in less overall time. So one of the things I point out in the article in Soaring Magazine is if you take a typical two-hour flight in a glider, 120 minutes, roughly three minutes, less than 3% of that flight is going to provide you with the experience that you need to deal with the most critical phases of flight, which are taking off and landing. Taking off and landing are the, if you look at the, the accident statistics, it's where most of us get hurt or destroy our equipment. So what happens on a typical two-hour flight is that you're going to get very good. You're going to spend 98% of your time cruising and intercepting thermals, and you're, you'll get very good at those things. What you're not going to get good at is the one minute you spent taking off and the two minutes you're going to spend landing. Overall, you may have hundreds of hours of experience, but you only have hundreds of minutes in the most critical phases of flight. In, in simulation, I can sit down in an hour and fly 20 crosswind landings or 20 crosswind takeoffs in the, in the span of an hour. Um, I wouldn't do that many takeoffs and landings in, in, a, in a season sometimes. So simulation is a, is a time multiplier in terms of being able to gain a, a great deal more experience for your brain in a lot less physical time. Um, there is no driving to the airport. There is no standing around waiting for your turn to fly. There is no, you know, launching into the air and then being able to practice the one thing that you want to practice before you land and then put the glider away and drive home again. You'll spend an entire day getting the amount of experience you could get in, in simulation in 10 minutes. And you'll save a lot of money. And you save a crap load of money. Yes. Um, and let's face it, time and money are, are, aside from our health, are probably our most valuable assets. So Absolutely. So that's that's certainly uh, one of the huge advantages of simulation. Well, I highly encourage everyone, if, if they haven't already, to definitely get into some soaring simulation. It has been a huge help to me and lots of people that I know. And going into the off-season now here in the United States, it's a great time to get on that and be able to stay proficient. You know, it, it doesn't even have to be off-season. You can have a come back from a, a, from a flight and have a lousy landing. And what you can do is you can, while that's still fresh in your mind, you can go home and fly landings and simulation and try to figure out what just went wrong um, and then and then work, work that back out again. Uh, or before you go flying that day, do a couple takeoffs and landings and maybe in crosswind conditions so that when you get to the airport, your brain is just much more tuned into what you ought to be doing 
So even even in the in the on season, you can be you know adding things to your safety repertoire that that in in very little time spent on the simulation that's gonna that are going to help you in when you actually go out to fly the aircraft. Do you have any suggestions on some things to use to read? What can people do on the you know maybe in this off season to get themselves more prepared for the upcoming new year? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, the the article that I wrote in Soaring Magazine um, talks about a, a bunch of things that you can do, but this is this is kind of a recap. One of the things I, I recommend is that as a guy who, as a flight instructor who would do f- um, flight reviews and spring checkouts and stuff, what you find is that is that people not only off season kinds of things, there are skill requirements and knowledge requirements that you were re- required to know and be able to do when you passed your flight test. And then your routine flying and your routine flying over the years, you don't do those things on any kind of regular basis. And so um, you lose those skills and you lose that knowledge. So my recommendation in the article was to regain your proficiency or to, to attain proficiency you may have never had and to maintain the proficiency that you still have. Uh, my recommendation is um, take a look at the back of your pilot license and look at your level of pilot certification. And let's just pick private pilot glider category. Go pick up a copy, uh, download a copy, it's free from the FAA, of the practical test standard for your level of certification and read through it because it tells you in great detail everything you need to know and everything you need to be able to do and how well you need to be able to do it to qualify for the uh, certification that's written on the back of your license. And then ask yourself this question, if, if today I had to pass the practical test for my level of certification, could I do it? And if your answer to that question is, I'm not sure, or if your answer to that question is, oh, absolutely, uh, in either case, um, I would recommend you get into simulation and see if you can, in fact, fly to the standards that your license says that you can and to perform all of the maneuvers to the standard that it says that you can. And then go do all of those things in the real aircraft to the standard that you that your license says that you can. So there's a that's that's not a bad start. I think that'd be a great test. Yeah, and it's something you can do on your own. And uh, again, we I, my notion is you. In fact, I always treated my flight reviews. Uh, you know, it was always said this is not a flight test. In my mind, it was. This was basically a recertification. If if on a flight review you cannot perform to the level of your sta- of your your certification, uh, I was I as an instructor would not sign you off for a flight review. So yeah, in the article that I that I wrote for Soaring, uh, my recommendation was you need to get into simulation and treat it like your life depends on it because I I genuinely believe it does. Some other things you can do from a knowledge perspective is uh, you know go back and read the FAA's glider flight manual. There's a there's a ton of good stuff in there. Russ Holtz uh, has written an excellent document called the, the Glider Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge that not only takes you through everything you need to know, but you know tests you on those on those types of things. I usually recommend that you know on some regular basis pick up a copy of the of the software that you can get from ASA or from Glime or from uh, a couple of the other providers and study for and retake your FAA written exam. Not the, you know, don't go actually take the real thing, pay the eighty bucks or anything because you don't have to. But take the take the sample tests that are available and uh, do that until you can pass uh, the same written test you took when you got your license. It's a great way to 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 brush up on the uh, on the stuff that you're supposed to know and that you that you have likely forgotten about airspace and those kinds of things. And finally, I would recommend you know there there's an organization called the Soaring Safety Foundation, uh, a group of folks that work very hard to make our sport safer. And they've got a, a whole raft of resources available at their website, which is soaringsafety.org. So uh, I'd strongly recommend you you just uh, you know spend some time looking through the stuff that those folks have put together because it's all great stuff. Well, you've given us a lot of great things that we can do over the off season and any time for that matter. And the simulator is a great learning tool. And you, I mean, there's so many things you can do. And not spend a dime except for spending the money if you don't already have the simulator. And when you go out to the airport, you're going to be much more prepared. You're going to be a safer pilot. So thanks, Scott. Lots of good stuff there. You're welcome, Chuck. Glad to do it. And thank you for joining us for another episode here on Soaring the Sky. If this is your first time listening, thank you. And if it's your first time discovering soaring and you want to take a glider flight and discover this awesome sport, all you need to do is go to ssa.org, find your local club, and get that first flight. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. 
or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.